morning. Good to see you all this morning. Great to see you at home as well if you're watching on Zoom. Lovely to have everybody here with us this morning. One of the most popular forms of TV dramas and uh, movies are murder investigations, whodunits, and they usually have some kind of quirky lead detective or sometimes a kind of sidekick detective who's also a little bit quirky and a bit strange. There's, I've got a screen up here. I did think about having a quiz, kind of spot the detective, the TV detective, but we've got Poirot up there, we've got Columbo. You can pretty much guess someone's age but over the ones they recognize and don't recognize. Morse, Lewis, Endeavor, Miss Marple, Frost, George Gently, Prime Suspect, Death in Paradise. Claire said I should do the theme tune for that, but I, I'll... Uh, I won't do that. Uh, strike, Midsummer Murders. Is there anybody left in Midsummer? I think everybody's dead there. Foyle's War, and of course our very own Vera. And then of course there's Taggart. There's been a murder. Apologies to the Scots present for murdering that uh, accent. We even have a popular board game, don't we, which is very much part of kind of Western culture. Cluedo, Colonel Mustard in the drawing room with the lead piping. It, it seems that we have a fascination with uh, murder mysteries and murder cases. And if you think about it, it's a bit odd really, isn't it, that you know, maybe even a little bit disturbing that so much of our entertainment industry is geared around murder, something that is universally recognized and accepted is wrong, and yet we watch quite a lot of our time watching about it. I guess that for most people, it's really about trying to solve the mysteries, trying to solve the, the kind of uh, riddle and the clues and all that kind of thing. But all the same, it is a strange phenomenon if you think about it. One of the first events recorded for us in the Bible is the murder of Adam and Eve's uh, second child by their first child, Cain. Cain murdered Abel. Murder is sadly very much part of life, right from creation, right from the beginning of time. Murder, sadly, is part of life, if I can put it in that way. So much so that when God gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel through Moses there on Mount Sinai, murder was one of the things that he specifically uh, prohibited. The sixth commandment was and is, you shall not murder. And we're going to look at this commandment today. We're going to look at the uh, commandment as we've been looking over the last few weeks. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus. We've reached chapter 20 of Exodus and we're looking at these, the ten commandments that uh, God gave to the people of Israel and gave to us all. So let's remind ourselves of how, firstly, how the Ten Commandments were given to the people of Israel through Moses by reading from Exodus 20. So if you've got a Bible handy and you want to turn, we're going to read Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read from verse 1 right the way down to verse 21. And this, again, is the, the scene and the setting and the account of how uh, God gives these commandments. So Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the, fourth, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, for the foreigner 
sorry, nor the foreigner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. The sixth commandment is, you shall not murder. But what is murder? When we think about murder, what is it? How do we define it? Well, according to the Bible and to most legal systems around the world today, murder is the intentional and the unlawful taking of a human life. Now you should have an outline in your seat and all the stuff that we're looking at today is on there and it'll also be up on the screen for you. So murder is the intentional, the deliberate and the unlawful taking of a human life. The word the Bible uses for murder is different to the various words it uses to describe the taking of a life accidentally or in self-defense or in just warfare or in capital punishment. It uses a different word for murder than for those kinds of life-taking. Taking another life is never good, but the Bible differentiates between murder and other ways in which lives are sometimes taken, and and most legal systems continue to do that. Ours certainly does in the UK. So why is murder such a big deal? Despite our fascination for murder mystery TV shows, everybody instinctively just knows, don't they, that and agrees that, that murder's wrong. It's just the kind of given. It's wired into us. If we look at the account of how God created the world, uh, back in Genesis chapter 1, we read these words. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So after God had created everything else, he then created mankind, Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, the very pinnacle of his creation. And the thing that was different about mankind to every other kind of creature that God had created was that mankind was created in God's image. That's why it's not murder, for instance, to kill an animal, and why killing animals isn't forbidden in the Bible, because animals are not the same as humans. They've not been made in God's image. So what does it mean then when we say that mankind has been created in in God's image? It's a kind of phrase that we bandy around in church, but what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be made in God's image? I've listed a number of bullet points on your outlines, and it'll be up on the screen in a moment. And and hopefully this explains a little bit and summarizes what it means for us to be made in God's image. You've been made in God's image. I've been made in God's image. We are unique. We are special. We are different. And so we're going to just explore briefly, what, it, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? Well, firstly, we have a God-created spirit that will live forever and enables us then to relate to God. God is spirit. And part of us being made in his image is that we also have a spirit. We're not just physical matter. Animals are just physical matter. We are not. We are not just physical matter. We have a spirit that will exist forever. 
And it's our spirit that enables us to connect with God in a way that no other creatures can. God has created you and I to be his counterparts here on earth. We have been created to, to, to live in relationship with God and to have a relationship with him. Man isn't identical to God. We're not kind of junior gods or anything like that. But we are similar to God. And we represent God here on earth. That's part of what it means to be made in God's image. There's a variety of um, human characteristics that animals uh, either don't have or they possess to a much lesser degree than, than humans have. And those uh, characteristics show our uh, likeness to God, the fact that we're made in his image. We have a knowledge of morality, of what is right and wrong. We have a conscience. We instinctively know what is right and wrong. That's why humans instinctively know that murder is wrong. It's written into us. That's being made in God's image. We have an ability to reason and to think logically and to learn. We can enter into profound relationships, marriage, community, the church. These are profound relationships that animals can't enter into. We have physical aspects that reflect God, an ability to see and to hear and to speak. We've got an ability to grow more like God in character and in our behavior in things like holiness and righteousness. We can become more like Jesus. We can become more like God in that way. And it's only when we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus that his glory and his image really begins to properly be seen in us. Mankind was created in God's image and was therefore sinless. But when sin entered into the world, when Adam and Eve disobeyed, the image of God in us was distorted, a little bit like a cracked mirror. You look in a mirror and the mirror cracked and the image that you see is distorted. It's not what it should be. But when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus and ask him to be our Lord and Savior, we begin that process of the image of God being restored in us and beginning to be fully seen in us. And one day, of course, uh, John says, when we see him, we shall be like him. And we shall, there will reach a point when, when Jesus comes again when we shall be fully like him. But we begin that process of, of, of the image of God being fully restored and seen in us as we put our faith and trust in Jesus. So every human being is made in God's image. And that enables us to know God and it enables us to have a relationship with him. This is what makes humanity, mankind, unique in all God's creation. This is why we are different. Mankind, every single human being is made in God's image and that enables us to know God and to have a relationship with him. And that's why murder is forbidden and that's why it's sinful. When we deliberately and unlawfully take another human being's life, we take the life of somebody that's been made in God's image. That's why taking the life of an animal isn't murder. We obviously shouldn't mistreat animals and, alpha, and animal welfare should be really important to us. But animals are not the same as humans. Only mankind is made in God's image. And human beings are unique in God's creation as being made in God's image with a spirit that will go on forever. So life is God-given. And taking it unlawfully, murder, is sinful. Life is God-given. And taking it unlawfully, we murder, is sinful. So where does murder come from? Where does the inspiration, where does that desire, where does that motivation to, for one human being to murder another human being, where does that come from? Where is its origin? What's its source? Jesus says these words to some of the Jews that he was talking to on one occasion. He says this, You belong to your father, the devil, 
and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus calls Satan a murderer and a liar, and he was a murderer from the very beginning, from creation. Satan is the cause of death itself, and specifically, he's the cause and the origin and the inspiration for murder. Whenever one human being commits murder and murders another human being, they're, they're following in the footsteps of Satan. And ultimately, they're being inspired by that example of Satan, even if they don't realize it themselves. And Jesus, contrasting himself with Satan, says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy it. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What a contrast between Jesus and the thief or Satan. Steal and kill and destroy it. And have it to the full. Murder comes from the very pit of hell. Make no mistake, murder comes from the very pit of hell. It is utterly evil and it is utterly satanic. God is life-giving. He creates life. Satan hates life, and Satan wants to take lives, and he wants people to behave that way, to follow in his footsteps. So the origin and the source of murder ultimately is Satan. God is life-giving. Satan is life-taking. And, and there couldn't be a stronger contrast between the two, could there? God is life-giving. He's about life, physical life and spiritual life. Satan is about taking life. Now, I'm presuming that so far you're all in agreement with what I'm saying, and I'm, I'm guessing hoping that none of you are actually contemplating murdering anybody this week. I'm probably fairly safe in saying that. We're all signed up, aren't we, to, you know, murder's a bad thing. We all get that. So what relevance, then, does this commandment have to us? If, if we all just kind of agree with this, what relevance does this have to us, then, today? I want to look this morning at a few ways in which we still need to hear this commandment. People who are signed up to the fact that murder is wrong, how do we need to hear this, and what does this mean for us? Firstly, the Apostle James writes these words in James chapter 3. He says, with the tongue, and, and Ryan referred to this the other week, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Part of what James is saying here is that how we treat other human beings is how we treat God. If you are made in God's image, how I'm treating you partly reflects and partly is a reflection on how I'm treating God. Murder starts with a sinful attitude in a person's heart. It's an inner sinful attitude from one person to another person. A, a, a person that's been made in God's image and that is unique and special loved by God, whatever stage in life they're at. And, and, and therefore, it's a sinful attitude towards God himself. It's a, it's a rejection of God, the life giver, the one who we made in his image. Jesus says this in Matthew 15, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. And so not only is the outward action of murder clearly sinful, but... So is the inner attitude of the heart that causes the murder. Murder starts in the heart. It's never just an outward action. It starts in the heart. It's not enough just for us to refrain from never murdering somebody. I've, I've never murdered anybody. We need to deal with the feelings and the attitudes of our hearts when we find ourselves feeling murderous thoughts towards other people. 
Because Jesus says this as he comments on the sixth commandment specifically. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And he's referring here to Exodus 20, verse 13. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. When he says brother or sister here, he's referring to our Christian family, spiritual brothers and sisters. You've heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So Jesus not only repeats the sixth commandment, but he reinforces it and he takes it deeper and he goes deeper. Jesus states that murder is an outward action that comes from an internal problem, an internal feeling, an internal attitude. And that sinful internal feeling or attitude that we might have towards another person, another human being made in God's likeness, it's something that we need to deal with and we need to repent of and we need to put straight. He's specifically referring here to how one Christian relates to another Christian, but it's true of how one human being relates to any other human being. He's talking specifically about a church context, but it's true for all relationships. Now, it's probably unlikely that any of us here today or any of you watching at home will ever actually murder someone. You may do. It's probably unlikely. But what is likely is that we will all be angry with somebody. We will all do or have done or will do what Je- or maybe right now are doing what Jesus talks about here, nursing a hatred and anger towards another person in our hearts. Sooner or later, other people will hurt us, intentionally or unintentionally. It's just it's a fact of life, isn't it? You spend any amount of time with another group of human beings, sooner or later someone's going to hurt and upset someone. And unless we deal with the hurt that's caused by other human beings biblically, we can find ourselves consumed with anger and bitterness, so much so that it drives our behavior and it it just kind of consumes us. We'll hopefully never actually get around to murdering that person, but if we're not careful, the the undealt with heart problem becomes all-consuming. And we can find ourselves murdering them, not outwardly, but in our thoughts and in our behavior and in our speech. The Apostle John writes these words, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So John develops what Jesus says and makes it clear that we can't, on the one hand, be a believer in Jesus and at the same time hate our Christian brother or sister. The two things are just not compatible. We can't be a believer in Jesus and claim we have eternal life in us whilst hating, in other words, really wanting a murder to take place. I've come across people who profess to be believers in Jesus. They're active sometimes in churches just like this one, and yet their behavior towards another Christian or Christian shows that they hate them. They slander them. They gossip about them. They curse them, as James says. According to Jesus and the Apostle John here, when people behave like this, they're behaving like a murderer. Murderers don't have eternal life in them. We might never, and hopefully never will, physically murder someone, but we can find ourselves, according to Jesus, according to John and James here, we can find ourselves murdering someone with our thoughts, with our words even. I wonder if there's someone that sinned against you, and as a result, you hate them. You just despise them. Maybe your hatred of them is justified to some extent. 
But if that's you today, if that's you this morning, and, and you know that you just, this person X, whoever they may be, a family member, someone at work, someone in your street, someone in this church, they sinned against you and you are just consumed with bitterness and anger and rage. Can I encourage you for your sake, never mind the sake of anybody else, to forgive that person. Put that problem right. And, and, and only when we allow God to heal the brokenness in our own lives and heal those hurts that others have done against us, often without perhaps even realizing it themselves, only when we allow God to really come in and, and, and touch us at the very deepest part can we deal with those problems and move on. To repent of the attitude of our hearts and, and to love those people. If there's someone that you need to forgive, whoever that might be, then can I encourage you, for your sake as much as anybody else's, to do that, to take that step of forgiveness. If there's somebody that you need to reach out to, by the way, if they've sinned against you and they don't know, don't go and tell them. They don't need to know that. Just sort it out between you and God. But if there is a real open problem between the two of you, and they know about this, then reach out to them and and have that relationship restored. Especially when that's in the family of God. Very few people will ever actually murder another human being. We'd certainly expect that to be the case, wouldn't we? For people professing to be Christians. But there is a form of murder in our society today that's tolerated, it's encouraged, and it's even celebrated sometimes. And sadly, even some Christians have been deceived into thinking that it's not important, or it's not a big deal, or it's just a kind of a matter of personal opinion. According to the Office for National Statistics and Public Health Scotland, in 2019, there were 220,967 abortions performed in Great Britain. This doesn't include Northern Ireland. 220,967 abortions performed in Great Britain. Let's just pause while we take in the enormity of that statement. As we study the Bible, and I haven't got time to, to kind of go through this in detail, I'm more than happy to chat about any of these points this morning. But as we study the Bible, we can see that life begins at conception, at the moment that a man's sperm fertilizes a woman's egg. And and science shows us that that's the case. And as uh, as a result of that irreversible event, a new genetically unique human being is created. This is the amazing beginning of sacred human life, of another human life made in God's image. It's a sacred moment. King David says this in Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, states that he was sinful not just from birth, but from the moment of conception, and and, and was therefore recognized by God as, as being fully human from that moment on. He says these words, amazing words, isn't it, aren't they, in, in Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Life doesn't begin at 10 hours or 10 days or 14 weeks or 20 weeks or birth. It begins at conception. We use terms like embryo and fetus, but even at one day old, what we're actually talking about is a human life, a 
baby. Talking about a human being made in God's image, a human being that God has given life to, that is every bit as human as you or I, and whose spirit will therefore exist and go on forever. Luke, in, in, in Luke 1, we read this account of when Mary went to visit Elizabeth, uh, who was at that point pregnant with who would later become known as John the Baptist. And we read these words, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. What a fantastic account. The Greek word translated as baby here is brephos, which is the same word in the Bible used for unborn babies and young children. The Bible doesn't differentiate between the unborn child and the born child. The Bible doesn't see any difference between an unborn baby and a born baby. A one-day-old unborn baby, what we might call uh, a fetus is, is just as much a human life, in God's eyes, as a one-month-old baby that's been born. And this unborn baby in Elizabeth's womb, who would later become known as John the Baptist, leapt for joy when he heard Mary's voice. He leapt for joy. Why? Because whilst he may have been unborn, he was still made in God's image. He was a God-created living spirit that responded to the arrival of Mary as she carried within her the unborn Lord Jesus. Our societies creatively come up with terms like abortion and termination, but what we're actually talking about is murder. Every single human being from the moment of conception is a human being created in God's image irrespective of any health limitations or disabilities they might have. If an unborn baby has a health problem or a disability, then they're still 100% human, they're still made in God's image. It just means that they are vulnerable and need our care and protection even more than anybody else does. One of the defenses that people often come up with when trying to defend and, and promote abortion is that of the situation where a lady has been raped and is then pregnant or when the mother would die or would probably die if she went ahead with a pregnancy. Now, these are terrible and tragic situations. But they actually only account for a tiny, tiny number of the abortions that are performed every year. I think it's worth looking at some of the official government statistics on, on abortion in the UK because they're really quite telling and shocking. And I think they largely speak for themselves. So in Great Britain in 2019, there were 220,967 abortions. That means that almost one in four babies conceived in Great Britain were aborted. Almost one in four babies conceived in Great Britain were aborted. 98% of these, listen to this, 98% of these were for social reasons. It wasn't because of rape or incest, or disability, or because the mother's life was at risk. It was because the baby wasn't wanted. 98%, that's from the ONS's own statistics. Only, only 181 abortions in England and Wales were performed in 2019 due to there being a risk to the mother's life or a risk of permanent injury to the mother. Only 181. Over 9 million babies have been aborted in Great Britain since 1968 the abortion law came in. 98% of those are paid for by the taxpayer. I personally find these figures heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. 
Whilst there have been over 220,000 abortions in 2019 in Great Britain, there have been around 120,000 COVID-19 deaths in the UK to date. Now, I just find that a very interesting and sobering comparison. 100,000 less COVID-19 deaths in the UK or in Great Britain than the number of abortions in the same period. According to the World Health Organization, there are 73 million abortions worldwide every year. 73 million. That's bigger than the population of the UK whilst they estimate that there have been around 1.8, perhaps 2 million COVID-19 deaths in 2020. 73 million. Here's a fantastic statistic, or a great fact. Medical staff in the UK can currently refuse to take part in abortions because of conscientious objection. That last point is at least some good news in the midst of those awful statistics. Now, it must be utterly horrendous for a lady to be raped. And then in addition to that, to find out that she's pregnant. And it's understandable why that lady might then want to have an, an abortion. However, the reality is that as horrendous as every one of these situations are, they're actually very, very rare. And the numbers are tiny. Research suggests that less than 0.5% of abortions in the UK take place because of a rape. Less than 0.5%. It must be a nightmare situation to be in, but even in this situation, an abortion can't be justified. Taking another life isn't going to heal the damage already done to the mother. Taking another life isn't going to solve the problem. It must be a terrible situation for a mother or for a family to find themselves in where to, 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 to go ahead with a, a pregnancy will mean or might mean the death of the mother. And there is a case, I think, in some very extreme and some unusual situations where to take one life to save another life might be justifiable. Might be justifiable. But again, the reality is that these kind of cases are actually incredibly rare. They account for less than 0.006% of all abortions in the UK. So when they happen, they will create terrible ethical dilemmas for those involved. And I don't want in any sense kind of underestimate this or, or, or downplay it. And each case w will need to be looked at individually and with massive grace and compassion. But the fact is that whether it's rape or the probable death of a mother, these awful situations actually account for a tiny, tiny, tiny number of the total number of abortions. And without in any sense trivializing or, or downplaying the seriousness and the awfulness of these situations, as arguments in favor of abortion, they are actually a significant red herring. Abortion, the murder of unborn human beings created in the image of the eternal God, is one of the greatest tragedies, if not the great tragedy of our day, of our time. As well as underlining that abortion is wrong and, and can almost, almost never be justified, we also need to underline that euthanasia and suicide are also wrong. I haven't got time to go into these and, and, and look at these in detail from the scriptures this morning, but they're both murder according to the Bible. And so as tragic and as difficult as people's lives uh, can sometimes be, we can never justify euthanasia or suicide. They're murder and we need to treat them as such. We need to show immense grace and compassion to people who, who, who find themselves in these situations. But according to the definition in the Bible, they're murder. 
Now, if we're followers of Jesus, then we should be pro-life. God is about life, spiritual life and physical life. And if we're followers of Jesus, that, that should be us, isn't it? Pro-life. Pro the lives of mothers and pro the life of babies and pro everyone's lives. Can I encourage you and, and challenge you to get involved it, it, it not just kind of from a distance, but actually to get actively involved in this. This is one of the great tragedies of our day, and it just goes swept under the carpet and ignored, largely. Can I challenge you and encourage you to take seriously the, 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 the call by Jesus to be salt and light? That's what it means, to be salt and light in our communities. And to go out there, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we're praying. The standards of God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So we, we should be actively pro-life and actively campaigning and, and opposing not just abortion but euthanasia laws and doing what we can to promote life. I've put a variety of, web, of websites on your outlines and I'd encourage you, check them out, look at them, sign up to receive news from them so that you can get involved. And when you see changes to the law being proposed, as we've heard from Martha this morning, there's a con public consultation at the moment. I sent everybody an email about this about two weeks ago. I don't know if you've... Uh, responded to it, can I encourage you to go home and fill that, that consultation and the government take notice of public consultations. And the current consultation is whether to continue with home abortions purely by post or not. Can I encourage you to get active in that and to object to that? If you need some help in kind of working out, well, I don't know what to say. Again, you know, there's, there's, there's great websites, the Christian Institute and so on, Evangelical Alliance, who will uh, give you advice on that. When you see changes to the law being proposed, sign petitions, write to your MP, fill in the public conversations. We need to be active in this field. And if you're not sure how to respond or what to say, then contact organizations like the CI and, and uh, others and they'll help you. Pray for MPs in Parliament taking a stand. There are lots of great MPs in Parliament of all political persuasions who are actively trying to stand for biblical standards and protect life in all its uh, aspects. Pray for Martha and Alicia doing a phenomenal job along with others there at TPAC. And maybe you might, you might want to get financially involved and, and, and give. The, the folks at TPAC are all, it's, it's, a, it's a Christian charity, they're all doing it in their spare time as a way of serving God. So you might want to give financially to support that. It may be this morning that you've had an abortion or that you're a man who's behaved in a way that has led to a lady having had an abortion. Maybe that you've participated in an abortion as a healthcare professional, or that you've been involved in the mistreatment of embryos or research on embryos. You may even have been involved in euthanasia, or you might have attempted suicide at some point in your own life. Now, I'm not here to condemn you this morning. I'm not here to condemn anybody. Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, the law given by God, they condemn us. We're all, we've all fallen way short of that. And what they show us is that we all need a savior. We all need someone to come and deal with our sinfulness, whatever those sins are. And Jesus is that savior. Jesus is the one who can come and put that brokenness, that shortfalling, that sinfulness, that rebellion. Jesus is the one that can come and deal with that. Whether you're someone who is broken by the damage that abortion does, something that, again, we, we just don't talk about, it wrecks mothers' lives, it destroys mothers' lives. If you're someone who's been broken by that, 
Jesus, come and heal your broken heart this morning. If you're someone who's participated or has been involved in that, Jesus is the one who can come and forgive you. Peter says these words in Acts 2, verse 23. He says, this man, talking about Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Jesus was murdered. Jesus knows what it's like to be murdered. He's been on the receiving end of murder and murderous hands, wicked men. And ultimately, that death at the hands of murderous men was for all my sins, for all the ways in which I have murdered others, if not in practice, certainly in my thoughts and in my heart. And ultimately, that death of murderous, at the hands of murderous men, was for all your sins, whatever they might be. Whether that's been an abortion, whether that's been the hatred of another Christian brother or sister, or for anything else, Jesus died to deal with all the ways that you and I have sinned against God. Peter says these words about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus has taken the punishment for all my sins, for all your sins, whether that's been hatred or murder or abortion or anything else. Jesus has already paid the price for that. And in Jesus there is forgiveness, there is healing, there is restoration, there is new life, there is transformation. And that means that no matter what we've done, we can be forgiven by God. It's by the wounds of Jesus that we are healed. God brings healing to sinful lives and he brings restoration and mending to broken lives. No sin is beyond God's forgiveness. So if God has been speaking to you today, then can I encourage you to reach out to him and to receive that forgiveness that he offers you. And he's going to lead us in a time of worship and response, but I realize I've touched on really difficult subjects this morning, and I hope I've done that in a humble and godly spirit, not in a condemning way. But if there's anything that I've said that you want to challenge me about or talk to me about, then I would be more than happy to talk to you about it. But let's just take a moment now to respond. What has God said to you? Not what I said. What is God speaking to you about this morning? Let's, let's respond to that.